You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. I want you to think for yourself, just evaluate your own life for just a minute. I want you to think back, when was the most spectacular or maybe even emotional worship experience you ever gave to God? Like where you were just caught up in the moment, you were worshiping the Lord, and whether it was, you know, intellectual or part of your heart, you just, you worshiped the Lord, and you just felt like well, I was just free and abandoned. Maybe for some of you, it was at a Christian concert, and you just were caught up in that moment, and you just were like, I'm just giving worship to God. Maybe for some of you, it was at like a, a passion play, just showing what Christ did during the Passion Week, and it was, you know, there's an orchestra, and it was the sounds, and just everything, and you were just giving God praise for just his extravagant love for us. For others of you, maybe you were at the beach, which is a, a common one for me, and you just see just how awesome and beautiful everything is at the ocean. You were in the mountains, and you just, you just heart is drawn to praise, and you give God worth. You give him glory for what he's done in his creation, and you just feel this intentional, emotional time. Maybe it was right here in Sun Grove Church, and it was, you know, for you that Sunday, the song was the sermon. That Sunday, you were just caught up, and you're like, that's exactly what I need to hear, and you were just giving worth and praise to God in that moment. And for some of you, it was that moment when you finally saw Jesus for who he is. You recognized him, and you saw him for who he really is, and you said yes to him. He said, today, I'm saying yes to Jesus. I am giving him my life. I am asking him to be the Lord of my life, and you surrendered to him, and you just acknowledged that you were God, and I am not, and, and I can't compete with that. It's you, God. It's you, and I'm giving you my life, and you experience that wholeness and that freedom, that forgiveness that comes in new life with Jesus. On the other hand, I want you to think of the driest season in your life. It was the emotional drought it was that time when you were maybe consumed with yourself, you were consumed with pain in your life, you were consumed with tough times in your life. God seems distant. You seem like you've got to handle it all on your own. And maybe for some of you, you're just busy. You're just self-absorbed. You're self-absorbed in your, in your own worship and you're just caught up in just your own world and, and all it is is work and home and the demands of life and you're, you're just kind of self-absorbed and worship's kind of like an afterthought. You kind of make it there every other weekend or, you know, you make it there and you're, and, you're, and, you're, and you're not having time in the word with the Lord and your life just seems dry and you're just consumed with those seasons that are all consuming and you get a little self-absorbed. Take heart. Because as you and I experience either seasons where we're high or we're dry, we can continue to worship God and keep calm and carry on without panicking or depending on manufacturing false emotion. With hope, you have the ability to rise above your circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. In this series, we've been talking about how to keep calm and carry on through all sorts of experiences in life. And we realize if we have hope, that gives us the ability. If we lose hope, we're without it. And one of the most beautiful things about worship is worship is a hope generator. It's a hope manufacturer. That's what happens when you and I worship. What's interesting is worship doesn't just happen here in this room. You and I are walking worship services. And we realize here at Sun Grove Church, according to our vision, that we encounter God, we grow through community with one another, and we live our calling. And today's sermon is really going to help you 
focus on what does it look like for me to encounter God even when seasons are emotional, it's high worship or it's dry in my life. What could that look like? If you have your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 19. Jesus has been going about his earthly ministry and he's been healing people and doing all sorts of great stuff. And he knows at this point in time though now that he's going to leave the region where he is. He's going to go from the Mount of Olives down through this valley, across the valley into Jerusalem. And it's there that he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried, two different trials that basically are a sham. He'll be ramrodded through those two trials and he'll be crucified. Dead in the grave. Three days later, raised to new life. But he's now entering this final, most intense, most emotional week of his entire life. And that's where our story today picks up. And the truth in the scripture in Luke 19 says this. The very real account about Jesus, verse 29 of Luke 19. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt there which no one has ever ridden untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, uh, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead went and found it was just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt and its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So you get this idea. Jesus is coming into town. And it's interesting because if you understand the signs of the times of that day and age, Jesus riding on a colt is significant. Because Jesus, in that day and age, if you were a king of anything, you did not ride a colt. You rode a mule. Your ride, your suburban, your tricked out, re double reinforced SUV, if you were a political figure or a king, it was a mule. That's what all the, you know, the heavies, that's what they rode. Jesus rides on a colt, and a colt is prophetic from the Old Testament, talking about the Messiah coming into Jerusalem, the one who's going to be, uh, who's going to be announced and anointed as the Messiah. Jesus rides on a colt one that's never been written, and it didn't buck him off and didn't throw him, but he rides it. And people begin to recognize as they begin to see what's going on all around them, that Jesus, the one who's done all these miracles they've heard about, Jesus, the one who's done amazing teaching and is, is miraculous in so many of his ways, he now is coming into Jerusalem, of all places, where the temple is, and he's riding on a colt. This is significant. Well, the question is, when you're confronted with a walking worship service, how do you and I keep calm and carry on when your life is either high or dry? Well, if you're taking notes today on your outline, you realize this, number one, that worship awakens hope because we are reminded that we have support. 
See, that's what happens. We realize I am not alone. When I begin to focus not on my own problems and my own life, but I begin to turn my eyes toward Jesus, the author, the perfecter of the faith, I'm reminded that I am not alone. It's not up to me to fix my whole life. It's not up to me to fix my own problems. I'm not on my own. I actually have support that so often life makes us think about ourselves and our limitations and live within our own power and dependency on it, right? But then we begin to focus on Jesus and we realize I am not alone, that I actually have support. Well, what does that look like? For the disciples and for you and I, we find that I can find vision and direction. I'm not alone. I don't have to manufacture it all on myself, that I can seek the Lord and he will guide my steps. He doesn't give me the blueprint out for the rest, whole rest of my life, but he'll give me just enough, just in time as I continue to follow him. So there may be moments where you're just like saying, Lord, I'm, I'm seeking you, I'm worshiping you. And God begins, as you encounter him, he begins to walk with you. A number of years ago, I was at a passion worship conference at the Nokia Theater in Los Angeles. And I'm there with like over 2,500 college students, young adults, and, and David Crowder Band is playing. And we are worshiping, and it's an emotional kind of high moment. And I'm just worshiping God. And kind of in the middle of that, God just gives me this impression in my heart. And he just says, Dave, enjoy this. Because this is the last time you'll be with this group of people in this kind of environment. And I was like, God, quiet down. I'm trying to worship you. Right? Like there's these moments that as we begin to encounter God, he begins to do some things in us and give us some vision, some direction. And it was shortly thereafter that I got a call from Sun Grove Church in Elk Grove asking us to consider coming up and taking a pastorate at this church. And God began to give just enough, just enough direction in that. Because why? As the moment of worship is seeking God, he's able to give us direction. There are other times we had to, of course, we didn't just, I didn't just take that impression and go, oh, that's it, and it's like the gospel truth. I continued to seek the Lord every step along the way to look and see, Lord, is, are you in this? Is this what you're calling us to do? But God is good. He helps us understand that we can find vision and we can find direction. It's when we're focused on our own problems that we, out of our own power, try to come up with the solutions that we think we can bring. And sometimes you and I run ahead of the Lord instead of seeking his guidance. Worship, encountering God, helps us do that. In our time alone with him, as we're a walking worship service during the week out in the world in which we live, you and I are a walking worship service. As you and I make choices to obey, we worship. As you and I make choices to seek the Lord, we worship. As you and I are the hands and feet of Christ, loving a community like ours, we worship. As you and I endure the punishment and the abuse of those who are against Jesus, we turn that back to God and we worship. So we find out we are not alone. Not only can we find vision and direction, but we are sharpened. I can be spiritually sharpened. I'm not on my own to develop a relationship with God. That there are others who come alongside of me. That it's not just good enough for you to run off into the mountains or the beach or anywhere else and just try to have a life with God but that you and I gather corporately together, that we come before the Lord and we say, God, we're going to seek you together. And as we're here, we're encouraged because we are sharpened by the word. We're sharpened as we sacrifice and give. We are sharpened with one another as we sing praises up to God. And as we interact with each other, we can be spiritually sharpened. What did Jesus, what did the scripture say? That the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices. They praised him. They lifted him up. 
They had direction. Jesus had told the disciples, go into this town, find the colt, and tie it, bring it back. They went there, and it was just as they had been told. Jesus at times can give you and I direction. Jesus at times will allow us to be sharpened as we interact and encounter God with one another. But not only does worship awaken hope because we're reminded that we have support, you need to realize that in many disciplines of life, you seldom improve unless you find mentors to copy that show you how to live a Christ-honoring life. Man, we need to see other people doing stuff. We need to learn. How do you learn to pray out loud? You see other people and hear other people pray out loud, and then you learn to pray out loud by praying out loud, right? You, you see what they do, and you learn to, to kind of copy that. And it's just conversation with God, but sometimes when you haven't prayed before, that's just a, a weird thing. Like I'm, just, I'm just talking, and you, and you just realize I am actually talking to God and other people here, but I, it's so helpful to see other people do that. As an athlete, I uh, love volleyball, and I would watch beach volleyball a lot, and I would try, as I watched and saw what they were doing, I would watch a, a, an athlete like Karch Karai, and I would watch what his body does in the air and how he turns the ball, and, and he brings his knees up so he can actually crank the ball around, and then I would try to make my body, when I go jump up to hit, to bring my knees up and turn my hand around to be able to crank the ball the direction that I wanted to in volleyball and turn it like he does. Why? Because I could see, I could copy, I could... In a sense, he was mentoring me. We need the same thing. People that we can watch who are just ahead of us. Who we can watch and just say, that's how you love like Jesus. That's how you deny yourself and obey. That's how you honor God. And I can find people who understand me when I worship. Because worshipers are sinners who have been saved. Sometimes people walk into a church and they think, nobody here is going to understand me. These people all have it like together or whatever. But the truth is, the people who understand you best, that understand that you are not a burden, that you are not beyond hope, that you are actually loved by Jesus, the people who understand the bad things that you've done and the horrible things that you've been through and the way that you just look at your life and you discount your life, the people who understand it best are worshipers because they too understand that they were sinners, they were not perfect or even good, but that they needed God. And they come into church and so they are saying, you are, you are at home here with us because we understand what it's like to be a sinner who has been saved. It's the most welcoming place. And last, when I'm attacked and slandered for following Jesus, God comes to my defense. What does the, the Pharisees say? They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Isn't it interesting that they don't say, teacher, knock that off. Or teacher, you should be rebuked. They don't rebuke Jesus. They tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Guess what the enemy of our souls, the devil, the evil one does? He's the accuser. And he comes and what does he do? He will say to Jesus, Jesus, you ought to rebuke your disciples. Look at how they live. Look at how they behave. Look at what they're doing. The very enemy of our souls is the accuser. That's the voice that you hear when you think, I don't know if I want to go to church today because of who I am or what I've done. He's the accuser. We rebuke that. We turn back against that. We push back against that, that God comes to my defense. What does he say? I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Like, you can't stop what's going on here. 
Jesus will say back to the devil, you can't stop my work that's going on in the life of this believer. They are mine. These sheep are mine. I have brought them into salvation. And you can't deter that. But the accuser still loves to accuse because he is the one who is condemned when you and I are not. But I like the picture there. Here you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the religious leaders of the day. And most of their life was performance. If we perform according to the Old Testament law, and by the way, they didn't just love to obey, they wanted to perform according to the Old Testament law, and they wanted to do it very publicly. They wanted to say, we in a sense want your worship because look at how good we are and how good we behave. And Jesus at time and again called them the blind leading the blind. Why were they the blind leading the blind? Because they were leading people, but they did not recognize the Messiah who had come to them. They didn't recognize Jesus for who he was, that he was God. And at times now they're coming saying, here's a, a walking worship service that comes through. God has become flesh. He is walking into town with these people, and people are, are giving him the red carpet treatment. They're taking their coats off. They're laying them down in front of the colt. The colt walks on by, and they pick their coat up and shake it off. I mean, that's a risky thing to do if it's your coat, right? Let the donkey walk by on it, you know, or the colt walk by on it. That's a risky thing to do, and you, you pick it. But what are they doing? They're giving him the red carpet treatment. They're worshiping and praising God for the miracles and the things they had seen. And the Pharisees come along to attack that, to slander that. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, haters going to hate, 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 hate. That's what he does. Let me tell you something. Sometimes your heart and my heart, sometimes we get hardened, don't we? Sometimes we get hardened against worship. And when your heart is hardened, you cannot rejoice. You can't celebrate the work that God is doing in the world. You can't celebrate the work that God is doing in the church. You can't celebrate the work that God is doing in your own life. In fact, so often you won't recognize it because you're selfish and you think only of yourself. Now, obedience, which is a really high form of worship, right? Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? So what's an appropriate response to worshiping your Lord? Do what he says, right? It's a high form of worship. So obedience is a high form of worship. And obedience for you and for me at times will make us very uncomfortable, won't it? When you obey the words of Jesus, there are times that you and I will be very uncomfortable because it pushes back against our fierce independence. It pushes back against what the majority is doing. And we'll become uncomfortable with that. But worship is going to make you uncomfortable sometimes. Let me tell you this, that churches that follow the words of Christ will at times make you uncomfortable. And obedience is costly. But in the end, the integrity will shine like the noonday sun, the rightness of your cause. If you're going to base your whole world, if you're going to base who you say Jesus is on the majority, then you've already lost. Because Jesus didn't come to the majority. Jesus came, in a sense, to the minority, to those who were hurting, who were sick, who were lonely, who were wounded, who experienced the brutality of life. He came to people like you and like me, not the richest of the rich, not the greatest of the great, but people like you and me. And it was them who were lifting him up and praising him on this day. So when a walking worship service breaks out, in that moment, the Pharisees see it, and they say, rebuke your disciples. 
Isn't that what Pharisees always do? They always hide behind their own self-righteousness, and then they sit there and point the finger and say, rebuke the disciples. They should have done things this way or that way. They point the finger. That's what Pharisees do, because in their pride, they could not see who Jesus was and is. The hardened heart wants to rebuke those who keep calm and carry on in worship. They are self-absorbed, and those who walk in worship make them uncomfortable because they see them obeying the words of Christ. Well, what are some dangers in worship? I think there's a couple. One of the dangers in worship is that you might become hyper-intellectual. And in being hyper-intellectual, you resist encountering God. You begin to overthink. You begin to say, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm going to judge the people around me and what they're doing and what their expression of worship is, and I'm going to judge how these things are happening. What happens is when you and I get intellectual, and I'm an intellectual, when you and I get intellectual, we begin to distance ourselves. It's a protector from relationship. Intellectualism can oftentimes protect you from feeling things because you want to overthink it, you want to overanalyze, you want to be able to look at it from a distance, and, and that distance sometimes is necessary when you're doing definite intellectual work so that you can focus. But the danger of that is you become all intellectual and you fail to recognize the passion of your heart and the passion of Christ. It becomes a blocker from feeling what you should feel. And so one of the dangers in worship is that you sit back and become all intellectual and it becomes a blocker for you, a hindrance to your worship. You might see others having an emotional experience in a worship service and you might actually despise them. Another danger is that you and I might just be apathetic. Just is what it is. I just wait till they get done. Don't really like singing or anything. Just hang out. The problem with apathy is that you just don't feel. You don't feel anything. You don't feel deep conviction. And you don't feel high emotion. You just don't feel. It's just you just are apathetic. You're just content. You're not growing. You're not being sifted by the Lord in worship. You're not allowing it to get to your heart. You're just Apathetic, you're watching worship happen, but you refuse to engage. It just is what it is. In doing so, though, whether you're hyper-intellectualizing things or whether you are apathetic, what happens to you and to me is this, that in doing so, we fail to see God as he really is, and we fail to see God as he is, then we fail to see ourselves as we are. Because when we reflect to God at who he is, there's this unique thing that happens as we reflect on the Lord. He reflects back to us how we are and what our image is in light of the holiness and awesomeness and presence of the Lord. So we begin to look at him and go, oh, there's parts of my life that need to be engaged with the Lord. That God still has work to do in lots of parts of my life. The real danger is this. If you and I get hyper-intellectual or we get apathetic, we will fail to recognize when Jesus comes for us. We will fail to recognize that he's been extending himself to you this week, that he's been extending himself to you through your dry season, that he's been extending himself to you when you are on an emotional high and when you're in the valley, that he has been walking with you and he's trying to teach you and he's trying to walk with you and encourage and refine you, but you will, you will refuse to see that because you will fail to recognize 
who he is. Jesus expresses his heart when people fail to recognize who he is. In verse 41 of Luke 19, he says this, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of the Lord's coming to you. See, the danger is that in the dry times that you and I, we might refuse to recognize God coming to you. Worship, though, awakens hope to endure hardship and rejection when the rest of the world fails to recognize Jesus Christ. You and I are going to endure hardship. We'll endure rejection when the rest of the world doesn't see it. They cannot get it. And Jesus shows his heart. He is weeping, wanting all to come to repentance. But he's looking prophetically at Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And he begins to speak about what's going to happen in A.D. 70, years later. When Rome comes and builds siege ramps against the city of Jerusalem and they hem it in on every side and they conquer that city and they not only that but they scrape the temple mount flat. The old temple is destroyed. Every stone of that temple is thrown off the temple mount. You say, what in the world is a temple mount? In those days when you had a hill, they didn't have bulldozers to grade it down and level it off and make a lot of real estate to build on. So they would build retaining walls on the side of the hill retaining walls and backfill it with dirt so now you had a large very rectangular platform and you could build lots of buildings or other things on top of the hill that's how they did construction and so what happened is when rome attacked the city they scraped it flat every stone got flung off and it went down the hill they ultimately destroyed the existing temple of god on the temple mount in jerusalem Jewish people, when they now go and approach the Wailing Wall, maybe you've seen pictures of the Wailing Wall, where they fold up little papers and they'll stick them in the wall and they pray, and there'll be Orthodox Jews who are rocking back and forth with the Torah, and they're chanting, and they're praying, and they're, and they're doing these things, and then people like you and me, tourists and, and Christians, can come on another part of the wall, and we can come and pray before the Lord. When you're doing that at the Wailing Wall, you basically are just going up to a retaining wall. That's just like the wall that holds the dirt in your garden. That's all it is. It's not an actual stone of the temple. It's part of the temple mount that's as close as they could get an Orthodox Jew to where the temple used to be. Jesus is forecasting that. Worship keeps you and I sane when life is brutal. Paul and Silas are in prison. They've been beaten. They've been thrown in prison in this middle of the night. They begin singing praises to God. Why? Because worship keeps you sane when life is brutal. The rest of the prisoners are like, they lost their minds. But Paul and Silas knew something the rest of the prisoners didn't know. That worship keeps you sane when life is brutal because if you're focused on your own stuff, your own circumstances, you will get lost there. But instead, in the midst of their hardships and rejection, they focus on the Lord and it keeps them sane in times when life is brutal. Life might be really dry, but we choose to worship and continue to worship God in the face of very little to celebrate. Well, there's a danger when life is dry. 
One of those dangers is this, that I become discouraged in dry seasons and I remain silent in worship, which leads to apathy, which then leads to judgment, doesn't it? What do we do? We say, I, out of the act of my will, lead my expression to God because my heart will catch up. But I start with an act of the will. I will worship even when things are hard. Why? Because with hope, you have the ability to rise above your circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. Luke 19, 45, Jesus now makes it across the valley to the temple. It says this, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. Let me just pause right there real quick. When it says he began to drive out those who were selling, uh, the other gospel accounts say he made a whip and he went in and all these people in the temple courts were cheating the value of the goods they would give to people so that they could worship. They were like things that they would use like doves or other things and they were almost like double charging them. And so they were using, they were basically using church as a way to, you know, get a lot of money and express greed. And so he, Jesus goes in and he grabs the tables, he throws them over, he's using this whip, he chases all the cheaters who are cheating people financially out of the church. He just runs in, he just does that, chases them out of the temple. So here we go, he says this, Jesus entered the temple course, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is passionate about his house, isn't he? It goes on, verse 47, every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. What happens when you and I worship? Part of worship is inspecting the temple. Part of worship is inspecting the temple. Mark, in his account of this, this activity here, says that Jesus entered the temple courts and he carefully inspected everything. It's kind of like a homeowner who comes home after being on vacation and you carefully inspect to make sure, you know, your car is still in the garage and that, you know, that there, you know, your, everything in your house is in order and you carefully inspect your home. It's, it's what he did. He came to the house and to see if worship was going on. And he found it to be lacking. He inspects you and I in the same way. When you and I worship God, he begins to help us see what's going on in the temple of God. Because in the Old Testament, it was a physical building. In the New Testament, because of Jesus, his final sacrifice has been paid. So you and I are now the temple of God's Holy Spirit. When you say yes to Jesus, when you receive the forgiveness of your sin, he gives you his Holy Spirit on the new inside. In fact, it's, it's saying that you become a new creation so on the inside, you now are a new creation in Christ and his spirit lives in you. So when you and I worship, it begins, it's, it's awesome because God begins to reveal for us, in a sense, he's inspecting the temple, he's inspecting us. He inspects us so that we grow in the process of formation, so that you and I will speak and act and love like Jesus loves. He's transforming us to reach to a lost world to be the kind of people who are experiencing deep wholeness on the inside and express it on the outside. Hidden stuff grows, doesn't it? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience, but in our shower at home, we have a little shelf. And on that little shelf, uh, we put like shampoos and stuff, and it, the shelf is tile. And uh, a little while ago, I was showering, and I actually picked up one of the, 
the shampoo bottles that hadn't been moved in a while, and I picked it up, and underneath the bottom was all this mold. Underneath the bottom, like on the black where it touched the tie. You know what I'm talking about? You, know, you have that happen maybe in your shower or whatever. And, and I just realized that, you know, hidden stuff grows. And, and it's so interesting to me that if it's been a while since you've been moved in worship, hidden stuff's going to be growing on the inside. That you and I, because of pride, because of an unwillingness to look deeply at our own heart or lives, or an unwillingness to participate with what God is doing in us, that hidden stuff's going to begin to grow on the inside. And God's saying, part of a weekly routine of worshiping corporately together, and a daily routine of being a walking worship service, is that as we encounter God, we begin to let Him work in our lives. But when you and I resist that, when we don't allow ourselves to engage with encountering God, hidden stuff grows, and it's unhealthy. And God wants to come along. We're already declared righteous because of Christ, but he wants us in the work of being sanctified to continue to be set apart so that we are valuable and used for his purposes, so that we are loving others like Jesus loves them, not just having the centrifugal force of the world that causes us to love ourselves. Hidden stuff grows. Well, Jesus cleaned out the temple physically because it wasn't filled with the genuine worship of God. Is your temple being filled with the genuine worship of God? Some of us are not on the danger side of uh, over, you know, being an over-intellectual. Some of us are on the danger side because we're just emotional people. And so some of us, you're going to be hyper-emotional in worship, and you're going to almost always, you live for the next worship experience where you will come and have this emotional experience with God. And one of the dangers there is that you think that you need to sustain or manufacture an emotional high to be spiritual. That you realize that you can be deeply spiritual in the driest season of your life. But you think you have to manufacture an ultimate emotional high. And the problem is we, be, we come before the Lord and we begin every week. We say, God, I love you, God. But you won't let God lead you. You say, I love you. But you won't let him lead you. Because what happens is this. Your emotions are incredibly high, but they lack conviction. They don't develop conviction in your heart. It's emotion. And you'll say, God, I love you, but you won't let him lead you. When we come to authentically worship, an inspection of our, the temple happens. God begins to remove the barriers to reveal for us how we can get past the hindrances to authentically worship him. He begins to search us out. And then what happens is this, inspection helps us develop appropriate convictions. Think of what you have a deep conviction about. Maybe it's your sports team, maybe it's the way life op ought to operate, maybe it's how people really should drive. Whatever you have deep convictions about, just think about how you express those. And when you see them not going that way, you're probably pretty quick and verbal to express those, aren't you? It just comes naturally. Why? Because you have a deep conviction about that, whatever it is. When you and I worship authentically and we allow God to inspect us, deep conviction is developed. And then we participate with him and he removes the barriers of pride and he removes the barriers 
that are in our life that keep us, things like entitlement. Like, I just deserve to run my own life. Why should I have to worship God? Or, you know, I'm just too busy with me to consider giving God worship. Or I, I don't think I want to obey that part of Scripture. I think I'd just rather obey the parts that keep me comfortable. Inspection helps develop conviction. And then when conviction is born, then our expression back to God is powerful in our way of expressing to God. And we're going to be different, all of us. But the way that we have deep conviction and we own it and we express back to God is authentic worship <coughs> with hope. You have the ability to rise above your circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed today, just realizing around the room that there, you might be here today and realize I've never said yes to Jesus. I've never recognized who Jesus is. And let me just ask you today, would you recognize God coming to you? God extending himself to you. God reaching to your life. That God was there for you and with you when you've been through the driest and darkest seasons. That God has been there in your emotional highs. That he has been pursuing you your entire life. And maybe just today you acknowledge that Jesus is God. And he's been the one who loves you, who weeps over you, who says, if only you would recognize who I am then you could experience the deep wholeness and healing in your life that you so desperately desire. And if today you'd like to say yes to Jesus, it's just a simple surrender. It's just saying, God, I say yes to you, and I'm giving you my life. I surrender my claim on my life. I now give myself to you. And he comes into our heart, and he makes us a brand new creation. And if today you'd like to do that, then you pray a prayer as you're seated, just right where you're seated. You pray it quietly. God hears you. But you might repeat something like this after me. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you were dead in the grave and that you rose to new life on Resurrection Sunday and that you are God. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. Thank you for paying for that on the cross. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you prayed that right now, would you just raise up your hand? Anywhere around the room, just raise your hand up. We've got some friends that uh, would just love to get over to you. Hold your hand up long enough. They want to give you some information about the decision you just made. But today, if that's you, just raise up your hand anywhere around the room. Hold it up long enough. They'll come find you. But just saying today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. You're awesome. You are worthy. You are mighty. You are God. Believers in the room, this is a good time for you just to say, God, just part of that inspection process, what are the hindrances I have to worship? Where have I been resisting you? Let me pray for us. God, we're so grateful for you. We thank you for what you're doing in and among us. We thank you, God, for being the king of the universe, the God become flesh, the one who walked with us and walk down a road carrying a cross that suddenly you couldn't carry anymore and it had to be carried for you and you gave your life and you were crucified for our sin and that you rose to new life, God, we give you praise that you in fact are the long foretold Messiah. You were not the Messiah then, you were the Messiah now. You were the Messiah who's to come back. 
And God, we just say here, we proclaim out loud that your name is higher, your name is greater. All our hope is in you. Your word is unfailing, your promise unshaken. All our hope is in you. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.